0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellersley Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellersley in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellersley, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Patriot.
1: Now, I want to make something clear. I, I really like the title, yes, but this is not like an autobiography type of message where I'm going to declare myself as the patriot, okay? I have a book called God's Gift to Women, and we always have to clarify that's not an autobiography. <laughs> the patriot is Jesus. Okay, now most of us don't look at Jesus under that terminology or that head. He's a king, he's a a lord, he's a master, he's a governor, he's a prince. There's all sorts of language that we can use to describe Jesus. Very few of us have ever thought of calling him the patriot. And yet, when you understand what the patriot is, you'll understand how perfectly Jesus matches with this terminology. I, I love the word patriot. There's something about it that just is in it's noble and you know you do think think of stars and stripes with the word because americans have definitely adopted that term to try and fit what we have done here in american independence but i want you to realize the concept of patriotism is far better applied to the christian than it is even to the american okay uh so let's let's dig a little deeper into this concept and you'll begin to see where i'm going with this The word patriot comes out of two Greek words. It's a very interesting combination in how it was put together etymologically. But pater means father. Patria means fatherland. And so what you see is if you put a T on the end of patria, what would you have? Patriot. That's actually where the word comes from. But fatherland, if you're calling someone a patriot, you're not saying you're fatherland. In other words, what is that? Well, this is the concept. It's the father, the pater, instinct for the fatherland. There's an instinct that a father has for that which is within his territory known as the fatherland. Okay? I am a father, and do you know that I have a fatherland? I do. I know that's not how we would typically describe it, but first of all, my marriage is part of the fatherland. My kids... In my home, part of the fatherland. If someone comes into my fatherland with the intent of harming that which is in the fatherland, do you know there's an instinct within me as a father to do something about it? Now, I recognize that some fathers lose that instinct or they never have it cultivated, but that's an unhealthy sign, a, depra- a depravity of indifference within us. If a father does not feel any instinct to protect that which is entrusted to him within his fatherland, something is wrong within that father. There is a natural instinct to protect and to preserve that which is entrusted to a father. I'm going to call that patriotism. Okay. Now, most of us, when we think of patriotism, think of nationalism, where we are protecting our homeland. That's a dimension of it that's still the fatherland. For instance, let's examine my fatherland, my own soul. When the enemy comes in with the temptation that there should be an instinct sponsored by the grace of God within me to rise up and draw a sword and say no, You go no further. In other words, my soul is part of that which has been entrusted to me. Then my marriage, then my home, my family, my children. Well, look at this. This body of, of believers, you know, this is part of my fatherland. And I consider it serious business if a wolf comes in and starts nawn on any of you. In other words, it is part of my fatherland. And so therefore technically according to the biblical framework i should be willing to lay down my life to see your life preserved and that would be what a patriot is so i want you to make the concept of a patriot a little more realistic to us some of us are not called to war and so most of us when we think of patriot we're defending borders but i want you to realize that is also part of what my fatherland is this is my town and if this town was being invaded, well, guess what? It is in my backyard, and it is my responsibility to do something. And you can say, you don't even know these people that might be getting harmed. Hey, it's in my backyard. This is important to me. This is part of my fatherland. I'm a man, and I've been given strength. Therefore, that strength is required of me in a time of challenge. Okay? And you go beyond this to the state, you know, to northern Colorado, the state of Colorado. If suddenly this was under siege, well, what would I do? Well, if I don't protect the borders of our state, if you will, well, guess what? That'll eventually end up in my church and in my home. And so therefore there is an instinct within me to rise up and to defend that territory to ultimately protect that which is entrusted to me. Okay. As the men of old used to say, for hearth and home, they go out and they spend their blood. Okay. When they're fighting for a border, they're actually fighting for their own family. Okay. Now I'm not, One that's just trying to teach people to go off to war and draw swords and, you know, start clanging uh, with other men. That's not what this message is about. This message is not about violence. This message is not about aggression. This message is about the simple concept of patriotism, which I'm going to define very simply as the father's business. The father has a business. He has an agenda. You know that we are in the fatherland? This is the fatherland. And God has a heart for the fatherland. Such a heart, in fact, that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, he spent everything to preserve the fatherland, to defend that which belonged to him in it. He gave everything, shed blood, died to preserve that which belonged to him. Okay? Just a simple principle. The father's business. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking. Why did you seek me? He said to his mother, Mary, and to his father, Joseph, who found him in the temple. He's a young guy. Why did you seek me? It's such a funny question. Why wouldn't we seek you? Could have been their response. We're your parents. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus just disappeared. Where did he go? I mean, every parent has this instinct to, you know, panic, you know, when their child is just missing at Disneyland, okay? This is Jesus missing in Jerusalem. I mean, where in the world is he? Where do they find him? They find him in and amongst the the priests and the, the teachers of the law. What's he doing there? And he says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus was here about his father's business, okay? That's very important for you to understand, Believe thou... This is Jesus again in John 14. Believe thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. There's a concept that is brought out in the New Testament, and it is a pattern for how Jesus lived, which is rather startling. Jesus, who is, by the way, God Almighty, and if you want reference to that, you can go to last week's message... He's God Almighty, come in the flesh. If there's anyone that could live self-sufficient, who would it be? It'd be Jesus. And yet he lived in such a way that would demonstrate how we ought to live. He lived wholly and completely dependent upon the Father. You see, he was in the Father, and the Father was in him. It says, believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. He had a secret to how he lived. He lived in the Father and the Father in him. And that which he did with his life was, get this, the Father's business. What the Father was speaking, he spoke. What the Father was doing, he did. He was not about his own business. He was about the Father's business. Now what's amazing, I I unfortunately trimmed this part down quite a bit because I was thinking of going into this a little more and now I feel like I wish I could. So I'll at least give a hint towards it. That is, the model of Jesus Christ... Well, let me give the next scripture. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So by the same way that Jesus was sent by the Father, we are sent by Jesus. Jesus was in the Father, and the Father was in him. You know how Christianity works? We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. So the same way that Jesus was sent doing the Father's business so are we sent to do Jesus' business, which is whose business? The Father's. We are called to be about the Father's business. But how, how are we about the Father's business? First, Jesus is in the Father, and the Father's in him. So if the Father's in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father, and you're in Jesus, and Jesus is in you, well, did you know that you're in the Father, and the Father's in you? Well, follow the logic. I know it's a little confusing there. But the same source that Jesus lived by, the same strength that Jesus lived by, dwells in you as a Christian. What's your business? It's called the Father's business. Well, I'm here to tell you it's the business of the patriot. The Father has an instinct for that which is entrusted to him, and he is guarded over that that territory, and he is willing to lay down his life to see that territory, or the people within that territory, protected, preserved, and made healthy for the calling that they've received. The Patriot, the zealous, brave-hearted preserver of the entrusted range. And then I have a little caveat at the end. One about the Father's business. That's the Patriot. Jesus was the Patriot. He had the Father instinct for the Father land. And we, each of us, are called to be patriots. We start and we practice in our own soul. This is where God starts us out. It's little elementary school Christianity. And God says, no, 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 don't focus on rescuing North Korea, all right? I want you first and foremost to deal with your own soul. I have given you all the grace you will need, but you must learn how to implement that which I've given you. Put on that armor, you see that weaponry? You need to learn how to wield it to first and foremost protect every thought that goes into your head. Anxiety can no longer rule you. Lust can no longer rule you. Pride no longer rules you. You take care of the fatherland. Then, if you prove faithful with little, I will increase your territory or your range, and I will enable you to expand that, which is what typically marriage is. If a man cannot prove able to care for his own soul, his own mind, his own life, well, guess what? He's not fit to care for someone else's. It only makes sense. You know what the statement is about a man who's fit to rule the house of God and to work in the church? He must prove that he can rule his own house well. If he can't rule his own house well, well, why in the world are we gonna stick him over the church? It's a basic principle. And so God is training the patriot at the individual level primarily. And then he trains you in marriage. You know when you get married as a man? Whew, that's a learning curve. There's a whole new dimension for caring. It's like that's within your fatherland. And then you have children, and whoa, it's a whole new learning curve. I mean, how in the world does this work? I remember thinking there was a conspiracy uh, to somehow mess with my life. When I first had Hudson, when he was first born, I remember thinking, how in the world can people function? I wasn't getting any sleep. I I couldn't even hardly think during the day. I was like, oh, what in the world? This is before spiritual athlete had fully kicked into my life. I didn't know how to function, and I remember thinking, those people that said that children are a heritage and a blessing, it's it's not that I didn't love Hudson, it was that it was a challenge, and it actually threw me off my game, I'd been married 10 years without any kids, I was an old dog, and this was a new trick, let's just say it that way, and it was a challenge, but guess what? The same grace that was given to me as an individual to begin to fight those battles and preserve the fatherland and then was given to me in my marriage was given to me as a father. It's grace. How does a father make it? How does a father maintain his sanity? How does he do it well? How does he protect and preserve that which is entrusted to him? By his own grit and determination? The same thing Jesus had. When you're about the father's business, you are given the spirit of God to fulfill your purposes. The spirit of the Father dwells in you to carry out that business. Oh, I love this quote. William Wallace, God armeth the patriot. It's the famous quote in the book Scottish Chiefs, which, by the way, is where Ellerslie is named from. If any of you think that Ellerslie is a creative, poorly uh, contrived name combination of Eric and Leslie, it is not that. It is Ellerslie. It's the birthplace of William Wallace. And so... Here we have God Armeth the Patriots, the great motto behind uh, the Scottish uh, fight for freedom. As they were being unjustly treated, their borders were being infringed upon by the, the wicked English. I know if you're English and you're like, we were not bad. Uh, it's just, it just depends on what perspective you read the novel from. Uh, but God Armeth the Patriot. Here's the key point when you are a patriot and you stand up for that which God has assigned you, that which is within your range, you must know that God will arm you for such a calling. How does he arm you? With steel, with muscle, he arms you with his spirit. He arms you with everything that is needful to carry out the agenda, everything. God armeth the patriot. Love that statement. I mean, it literally is like a a, a man's statement that makes a growl come out of your, your throat. God armeth the patriot. Second Kings 11. So shall you keep watch of the house. This is in the days of wicked Queen Athalia. So shall you keep watch of the house that it be not broken down. And you shall compass the king. This is a little boy king. The wicked queen had tried to annihilate the entire seed of the lion, which Jesus came from. And she did not know that there was one still maintained. And he was hiding in the temple of God. And so all the priests were set around... It said, and you shall compass the king round about every man with his weapons in his hand. And he that cometh within the ranges, let him be slain. And be ye with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. And to, and to the captains over hundreds did the priests give King David spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. Okay, now what's your position? In Christ. In Christ who is, by the way, the temple of the Lord. Remember he said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They're like, hey, it took 46 years to build this temple. But then it says, the temple of which he spoke was his body. And you're located in Christ. You're actually known as the body of Christ. What's available in the body of Christ? For the preservation of the king, the line of the seed. That's a picture of the Messiah, the life that has been entrusted to you. Look at what they're given. This is about as exciting as you get. It says, and to the captains over hundreds, did the priest give King David's spears and shields? I want King David's spears and shields. Isn't that neat? Well, we don't just get King David's spears and shields because that's only a foreshadow of the one who will come, who's the root and the offspring of David. We get Jesus Christ's spears and shields. God armeth the patriot." When you stand up for that which God has assigned you, everything that is needful to carry out the commission is supplied to you. Yeah. So Martin Luther makes a statement if I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing. Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. You can be noble, and you can be strong, and you can make a big bark for the gospel over here, and then your family is being sabotaged by the enemy over here. You're flinching at the point where the patriot is needed. And you can justify and say, but look at the good I'm doing over here. But if you are flinching and failing in the point of attack, that the enemy is seeking to devour your family and your fatherland, then, as it says, to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. This is a measuring stick type of quote. In other words, there is a little point in which the enemy is attacking in every generation. And usually it is a sticky spot. Usually it is politically incorrect and you don't want to touch it. And if you touch that point, you're going to be thrown in with the wackos out there. And guess what? The patriot knows that he must stand his ground in that territory and stand unflinching in his generation. Training for the bully, building the unflinching boy. I think I've shared this before at, at the church. I'm not exactly positive, but I think I have. I was talking about how I would train Hudson as he's growing up. See, I don't train my son to beat people up. I don't train him for violence at all, okay? And he would be the first one to tell you that. You know, if I, I've never told him how to make a fist. I've never told him how to do a karate chop. I've never told him how to kick someone uh, in a spot that would bend them in two, I haven't done that, okay? However, this is what I would train Hudson for. Okay, when I was growing up, and this is just a little background on me, but uh, I grew up in the public school system and we had a park across the street. And typically there was this bully, you know, we had a a few of them in the school, but this one bully that would always be like, after school in the park, okay? And he would like do the old uh, taunting thing and the threat. And then I mean, no one wants to go into the park and fight the bully, okay? Because, that I means it's just bad news. But so the bully's cronies would literally take that person who was invited to the park and force them there, okay? Because it was off school grounds. I mean, if you do it on the school, you'll get expelled. And so you had to do it off school grounds, and for whatever reason, the park was the place, okay? And it was right on the way home for me from school. And so I'd literally walk right by it. And my intrigue was just skyrocketing because I'd tried to resist and not go multiple times, but I was just so intrigued to see what a fight was like. And so this one day, you know, the bully had picked on a little teeny kid. And so it was a David Goliath showdown and this little, you know, diddly squat kid and then the, the big bully. And I remember coming in and standing in the crowd And I sensed the injustice. There's no doubt about it. I sensed the injustice. This is wrong. Of course, I was picturing what it would be like if I was in there because I was just a little taller than the diddly squat kid. And, you know, I I would not be looking too good. And you know what? I did nothing. I did absolutely nothing in that situation. And the big bully comes over and just clobbers the little kid and then starts, you know, he's down on the ground, gets on top and starts, you know, punching him in the face. And I remember being so horrified with what I was seeing but guess what I did nothing and you could say well Eric I can understand if you had done something the big bully comes over and beats you up too what good is that here's what I would train Hudson for if Hudson ever sees the injustice here's what I would desire of him big bully little diddly squat kid if he sees the injustice I don't care if there's a mob around and I don't care how big the bully is Hudson must do the right thing. And so imagine what this would look like. Little Hudson strolls out and stands between the bully and the little kid. And he can be shaken. It's okay to shake. <laughs> but he says something like, leave him alone. And the bully looks down and goes, it's none of your business, Lootie. Get out of the way. Otherwise, I'll make it your business. Ah. Uh, I won't move out of the way. You have to get through me to get to him. You see, little Ludie in this situation is not doing a very wise thing, is he? Because big bully is a lot bigger than he is. Big bully has big meaty fists. And little Ludie hasn't been trained how to create much resistance in this situation. Makes no difference. The resistance is spiritual in this situation. It's not just Physical. When little Lutie does what he's supposed to do, the world is hearing the gospel. All those watching are hearing something that they do not hear in this culture any other way. It's when injustice is being perpetrated and one lone guy stands up that the gospel can be heard in a generation in other ways that it cannot be. There is a need. For that which is right to be done, and for the patriot to stand up, and to know that God arms the patriot with everything they will need to make their knees sturdy in that moment. So, what does Big Bully do? All right, you going to be that way? Thunk. Now, imagine that Hudson doesn't throw one blow. Imagine that Hudson goes down with one strike of the big meaty fist. Has he failed? He might be laying off to the side unconscious, with a bloody nose. And the big bully still might make his way to the little guy and beat him up. However, the gospel was preached that day. It wasn't the fact that Hudson created a great resistance. It was the fact that Hudson preached the gospel in that moment. You know that everyone looking on would say, I should have done that. (laughs) And you know that the little guy that was beat up, what's he gonna be thinking? Hudson stood up for me. Talk about a bond that those two would have. Hudson knows Jesus, and that little diddly squat kid needs to know Jesus too, and guess who he's very likely to ready to listen to? Hudson! Cuz Hudson has something. Hudson's willing to give up his comforts to be beaten up by the big bully for his sake. Hudson did what was right. You may not appear to be successful, in your intercession, in your standing in this generation. But when you do that which is right, God is arming you to change the world in which you live. Do not measure it by how long you stand. Measure it by the fact that you did that which was right. That's what we are begging for in this generation. And we all know it deep down. If one guy in all of Congress stood up and did that which was right and took a bullet in the head for it the next moment, We wouldn't say it's because he voted on something. It's because he stood up when no one else was willing to. And in every single moment in our life, there is a desperate need for that to happen. We need the unflinching man to return to this generation. So training for the bully, building the unflinching boy. Training for the catastrophe, building the unflinching believer. You know, a lot of us, when we hear about how dark things can get, you know, you hear the rumors or you read an article and they say, yeah, the, you know, economic system is going to collapse or, you know, the UN is preparing troops and, you know, you have all these different things that could come in or gas prices are going to shoot through the roof or Obama is going to be reelected. I don't care what it is. When you hear the potential doom that is hanging over this nation, how do you respond? Do you flinch? You see, God is looking for men and women who are patriots, men and women who do not flinch in the time of need. Everyone else is flinching. What we are needing is someone to rise up and provide the confidence, that rail-like, rod-like backbone in a time of crisis. You know the best time to reach people with the gospel? Crisis. It's just the way it is. It's sort of the nature of how things work. However, in a time of crisis, if you're trembling with everyone around you, who's hearing the gospel? No one. Because you're the one with it. You're the one that's unflinching. And the moment that that, which is needful, is needed, you have it. And you're ready to give. We used to talk about uh, Y2K. Remember Y2K? 19, you know, December 31st, 1999. No one knew what was going to happen. I cannot believe that was 12 years ago. That's like wild. Uh, But, I mean, it seems like just yesterday. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, so for all the people out there that bought generators and had a basement full of baked beans and bottled water, uh, it's okay, you know, no one knew what was going on. Uh, But that said, if you have a generator and a basement full of baked beans and bottled water, and crisis really does come, is that baked beans and bottled water in that generator yours? It belongs to Jesus Christ. And are you willing to do exactly what Jesus did, which was to give up his best for the week around you? Because they didn't think ahead of time. They didn't know. Well, guess what Jesus could say to you? You all sinned. You blew it. Why am I going to give up my life for you? You're about the Father's business. You do as Jesus would do. And if he would give up his baked beans and his bottled water, then by golly, so do you. It's the way it works. Your baked beans and bottled water technically belong to him, and if he wants to spend them, so be it. And guess what? When one man stands up in a generation and does that which is right, it preaches the gospel to all the others. Could you imagine a time of need? And the community around you sees you opening up your basement and saying, hey, guys, I have something you need. And guess what? Your basement might never run out. The baked beans and bottled water might just keep coming out, and you look at it and stare in bewilderment as your whole back wall is still full. You're like, How is this working? Because you're about the Father's business, and God armeth the patriot. God will supply for the patriot that which is needful, but how many of us are willing to be the patriot? We don't want to be that guy. Let someone else take that risk. Let someone else take that big, meaty fist in the chin. No, what we as the body of Christ say is, God, may I be the one to take the big, meaty fist fist in the chin. That is the privilege of privileges. So let's read this quote again. If I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point, which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However, boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So here's the bully with the little diddly squat kid over here. And, you know, right before that and right after it, you might have a great opportunity to share the gospel with someone. But if you don't share the gospel in that exact situation, you're flinching in that exact situation... Let me read it again. To be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. On that little point, are we flinching? Let me give you a few examples 23,000. You guys know what 23,000 is in our culture? 23,000 abortions a week in America. It's amazing. It's 23,000 murders a week in this country. You know, in China, 35,000 a day. Yeah, what do you do with numbers like that? Well, that's a good question. What do you do with numbers like that? If you knew something was engaged in your fatherland, and that which was touching, that which belonged to Almighty God, what would you do about it? It's an interesting question. Uh, This is politically charged. You know that the issue of life is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. It's a God issue. If my wife and children were being harmed, I wouldn't call it a political issue. It's a God issue. And there's a need for a man to do that which is right in every situation. That doesn't mean clobber things, bring out your big meaty fist. But you must be ready to do that which is needful and not stand trembling, but unflinchingly for that which is vulnerable. There are lives that have no voice to speak for them except for yours. Who's willing to stand up against the big Goliath and take it to the jaw? 163 million. Do you guys know what number that is associated with? Orphans. It's 163 million. Of course, that's... number goes up and down depending on who's doing the study but it's a big gigantic number 163 million little children without an advocate without anyone to stand up and defend them well who's willing to stand up against the big behemoth who's willing to get in the way and you could say what what good could we do with that big of a number that's a good question You know what? When you start staring at numbers, you end up missing the localized battle, which is with one. But I tell you, you know, ever since I started standing up for orphans, I don't know how many years ago it was, five and a half, six, something like that, the number has grown 20 million. So you can say, see, Eric, didn't help, did it? Well, would it have helped if I didn't do anything? We are responsible not to look at it and calculate our personal impact any more than Hudson should evaluate if he made a huge difference in stopping the big bully from beating up the kid. Who's gonna do the right thing in this generation? God is called the father of the fatherless. What's his business? He's in the business of the fatherless. What business are you in? Well, that's part of it, right there. You're in the business of the fatherless. 27 million human slaves. You know that we have more slaves today than in the days of William Wilberforce. You know that most of those 27 million are women. And then most of the women are little girls. I mean, it is so utterly appalling what is taking place in this world. And my question is, where are the patriots? I recognize how big these giants are. And I recognize how small and diddly squat we may feel standing up against him, especially being the only one. Now, you know, my vision for Hudson standing up, what if every other person stands up in that group and says, hey, guy, leave this kid alone. Well, you know what? It actually does change things. However, that's not your job. Your job is to be the one to stand even if no one else does. You can't be responsible for everyone else, but you can be responsible for your own soul and start to deal with the fatherland right here. Number four, the death houses. In North Korea, as rumor has it, since no one can get in North Korea and confirm, uh, there is a mass problem with the way they treat their vulnerable. When a child is unwanted over there, they don't stick it in an orphanage, they stick it in a death house, which is a house that is locked from the outside. No one knows what goes on inside of those death houses other than death. Death. And all we know is that the children never come out. There's no food in there, there's no anything for them. They're literally locked in until they die and more are thrown in on top of them. It's called the death house. I tell you what, not on our watch. Now I have no obvious solution of what to do about a death house. What am I gonna do? Run across the border uh, into North Korea? and try and find the death house which no one seems to know where they're at go up to every house and burst inside, is this a death house? What am I going to do? I feel impotent and I feel small we do that which God assigns us, That's, it's as simple as that, you may not be the one to do something about a death house but you might be one to deal with a bully today in Windsor Colorado you are given an assignment from God Almighty, you take it it's in the moment that you must be ready and be unflinching at that point. When everyone else is cowering, are you willing to be the patriot and to stand up? Number five, the death squads. Down in Brazil, they literally have death squads. Usually they're off-duty cops. And for sport, they hunt street children. That's what they do in their off hours. They're actually paid by business owners because the business owners, their businesses are hampered by these street kids hanging out in front of their... They're businesses, and so at night these street children run for their lives, and the men that are literally supposed to be protecting the city are the ones hunting the street children. Whew. Where's the patriot when you need him? The cattle cars. Some of you have heard this story, but it can't hurt you to hear it again. Back in Nazi Germany as the Jews were being rounded up into cattle cars and being carted away to their concentration camps, death camps, work camps, as they were going down and packed in literally like sardines inside of these train cars and there's the slats in the side, as they were driving along, they spied a church with the lights on and music was coming out of it. They were singing. It was worship time in the church. And so they reached their hands out of the slats and started screaming thinking if there was anyone on planet Earth who would attend to their needs, it would be the ones in that building. And as they were driving by, they were screaming at the top of their lungs, Help! Help! And the ones inside that church turned up the volume of the pipe organ to drown out the cries. I can understand, can't you? That's what we do all the time. So if we're gonna excuse ourselves, what do we do? We turn up the volume of our life, our busyness, our activities, our Facebook, our shopping, our movies, our television. We have something we can turn up, can we find it? Can someone give me something? I don't want the silence, because in the silence I may hear the cries. They turned up the volume of the pipe organ so that they wouldn't have to deal With that which they knew they couldn't stop anyways. I mean, what's one guy going to do? Run out of the church? Jump on the tracks in front of the moving train and say, stop! Just be plowed down. What good is that going to do? That's exactly how we all reason. I wouldn't wouldn't do anything anyways. It's not my business. It's the Father's business. And the Father's business is your business. It's my business. We cannot turn a blind eye anymore. This is the father's business, and we're about the father's business. I know we can't save 23 million, this, or 23,000 this next week from being aborted. But we can get on our knees and begin to work. I know that 163 million orphans are not going to be rescued tomorrow. But what are we willing to do today? To begin to see something change. To begin to express the father's heart in this world. The great baby rescue. One of my favorite stories. It's in the book The Hiding Place. And it's Peter, the nephew of Corrie Ten Boom, who hears about an orphanage of Jewish babies and is going to be exterminated the following morning. They were going to kill 100 babies in the morning. I don't know how he found out, but he found out. And so Peter, we could call him the patriot, gathers together a whole crew of other buddies. They steal, get this, they steal Nazi uniforms, sneak in the night into that orphanage, rescue a hundred babies. And what did they do with those hundred babies? They distributed them into the body of Christ that was willing to receive them. So my question for you is, if we found out that a hundred babies were going to die, who in their right mind today is prepared to be the Peter? Peter. And then, if we get a hundred babies, who is willing to receive them? That's an inconvenience. You better believe it, a baby's an inconvenience. (laughs) Babies keep you up at night. They cost money. They're sometimes challenging. I know they're cute. There's funny things that come out of these babies at very inopportune moments. (laughs) Babies are work. Who is willing to receive. Who's willing to rescue and then who's willing to receive the hundred? This is my original challenge when I brought this up, this exact same story up. But it was about eight months ago. It said, are we as a church ready to receive a hundred babies? If the, if the moment calls for it, I know we're a small congregation, but are we willing and ready to receive a hundred babies? Can you think of a greater inconvenience than that? I mean, what are we going to do? Could you imagine what Sunday mornings would be like with a hundred babies in here? (laughs) Would that be heaven on earth or what? By the way, I love babies, even though it seems like I'm giving them a, you know, a, a knock. I love babies. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point, which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. You see, the only reason I'm going through this message is to begin to recognize in all of us that we are flinching. We have our justifications for why our hand is on the pipe organ volume. And our hand is caught. It's like, whoa, what? ah." Did anyone see that? No, I, I, I wouldn't turn up the pipe organ volume. We're famous for it. That's what we do for a living is turn up volume in our life so that we can drown out the cries of that which is needful around us. Why? It's going to tax our life. It's going to tax our resources. It's going to tax our energies. We don't want to live for that. We want to live for us. Uh-oh, what did we just confess? We confessed that we are selfish at the core. What did Jesus Christ came to do? come to do? He came to rescue us from self. He came to turn us outward, to set us free from our bondage, being on the throne of our life with our hand on the pipe organ. He came to wrench us free from that position so that we could be about the Father's business and be sent into this world just as he was sent into this world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. This is Jesus speaking. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Assuredly, I say to you, in as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Father business. When you are doing the Father's business, you're serving Jesus Christ. This is how you wash his feet. You're impressed with Jesus? You love Jesus? Then love him the way he asks to be loved. Pour out your life for those around you. Sharing the life of a believer with the destitute and the lost is not the entirety of the Christian life, but it's definitely a part of the Christian life that cannot be overlooked and cannot be forsaken. Christianity, by definition, could be called the great inconvenience. Could you imagine if we all got together on Sunday mornings and we understood that this was the great inconvenience we were signing up for? That's what it is. We're signing up for the great inconvenience. We're entering into covenant with an inconvenience. It costs us everything. Our life is mapped out. We have everything together, don't we? We're Americans, at least most of us. Hey, we got it good. And then Jesus starts getting into our life, and what is he doing? No, no longer about you. It's about him. And when it's about him, his, where, is his, where are his eyes looking? Just You should follow his gaze every now and then. Where's he looking on this earth? Because where his concern is, don't you think that's where our concern should be? His concern is weighty and it's heavy. And it's definitely inconvenient. Any of you that want to begin to consider the fact that inconvenience is a bad thing, you have not read your Bible. Inconvenience is the avenue into grace and glory. It all comes through inconvenience. I remember one... Uh, evangelist from New Zealand said, true life begins, resurrection life begins on the far side of that cross. Well, look at that cross. Splintery, you know, there's some nails involved, blood. Inconvenient! Yeah, who wants that? But true life begins on the far side of it. In other words, to get to the true life, you have to go through that cross. That's the same with every aspect of life. If you want life, you go to the cross to get it. You literally must go through that inconvenience, that difficulty and that challenge to the soul to find what you are truly looking for and what you're built for here on earth. You're built to be alive. But to be alive, you must turn outward. You must give up the husk of your humanity. You must follow Jesus and let him take you. These hands now belong to him. These feet are his feet. This heart is his heart. These eyes, his eyes. These mouths, his mouth. You belong to him. What he wants to do with you, he does. And that's where life is found, it's hard to explain. It seems backwards. We should get life by going away from those difficulties, but in actuality it's going towards them that we find it. You see, we've been listening to the world's mentality about how to find life. It's in how much money you have, how many things you have, the position of power you have, and these people commit suicide. They do not find it. Though they have the world, they lose their soul. God is introducing us as the body of Christ to his ancient truth. It's always been this way. He created us. He knows. You find life out of death. You find abundance out of giving up everything. What? Uh Uh-huh. That's how it works. The little girl in South Korea. Oh, personal testimony here. There's a little girl in South Korea that Leslie and I find out about who is an orphan And I tell you what, at first you might think that you're doing a very noble thing in standing up for a little child. Here's my testimony on on that fact. I have been changed as a man by reaching out and loving what God loves. I tell you what, little Harper Grace in my life is no different than a biological child to me. She is my child, a gift of grace unto my life. She is life to everyone who knows her. It's a nuclear blessing planted in my life. But how did it come? You know that adoption is not an easy process? Any of you that have not gone through it, I don't want you to scare scare you off from it. But I tell you what, it is an amazing process. It changes you. It tests you at so many points. There is so much richness in the process, and you recognize the heart of God on a whole nother level. You know that when Harper came into my family, my entire inheritance, Leslie's in my entire inheritance, everything that we've worked our entire life for immediately was all bequeathed to her. Yes, it was split between her and Hudson at the time. But the point being, a child grafted in not even a biological descent suddenly has access to the entirety. How much more incredible is that? Because Eric and Leslie aren't that impressive when it comes to resources and inheritance. Jesus Christ, the Father inheritance, all things made available for all eternity. And you're grafted in? You're not even a biological descent. For, for most of you, you're a, a Gentile dog. And you were grafted in to share in the almighty inheritance of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whoa! The little boy from down the street. You guys might know him as Do. Kipling. Just a little boy in a mother's womb. I tell you what, I remember when this first began to awaken for Leslie and I to begin to consider adopting this little boy. I remember praying, God, please, please, could we share in this little boy's life? Never met him. He wasn't of biological descent. And I found myself longing, loving this little unborn boy with a love that was inexplicable and hard to describe because little baby boys are hard work and they're going to cost money. The typical man side of me is going to be considering how difficult this would be, how much time I'm going to lose, how much sleep I might lose. Because Leslie was pregnant the very same time Debra came home from the hospital. And guess who stayed up with him at nights? Mm-hmm. And guess who wanted to? You see, when you get God's grace, you find that These little children, these little babies, these little inconveniences are anything but an inconvenience. They're an avenue straight into resurrection life. Arrows in the warrior's hand. Listen to this scripture. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. I'm going to give you, this is just a personal testimony on this matter. I have four kids right now. now. Technically, I'm going to explain this in a second. I have six. But I have four in my house right now. And what I'm called to do as far as just in life is a lot of weight. I have a lot of responsibilities. And it seems in. Conceivable that I can have young kids. I had four kids, four and under, at the very same time I was starting Ellerslie in this church. Four kids, four and under, with two babies. And it was ridiculous. It was laugh out loud ridiculous at the time. And Leslie and I chose to believe that children are not an inconvenience. They're actually an augmentation to strengthen us for our calling. Here's my testimony. I am a stronger man for what I'm called to do because of my children. What I do is not in spite of my children, it's as a result of the strength that they lend me in being a father. When I am forced to be excellent at fatherhood, you know that it makes me better in every other realm? It does, it's just a simple fact in my life. And I have full confidence as two more added to the Lutie household, that Eric Ludy will be a stronger man because of it, not a weaker, it's like, oh Eric, that's really gonna make it hard for you. It's going to make it better, stronger, more lively for me. Yes, it'll be many moments of hilarity and laughter with six kids, seven and under. And guess who's ready to leap for joy? It is my great privilege. This is the same guy, by the way, that was scared of holding little babies for fear that they would break under his watch. No, no, Eric, do you want to hold? No, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. I work with older students, Uh, not these little ones. I don't know exactly... I was terrified. Well, you want to know 10 years, no kids? Mm-hmm, that has something to do with it, okay? And then God sort of said, we have some you know, lost time to make up for here. Six kids in seven years. That's, I think, biologically impossible, potentially. God's sense of humor. I love it. Here's my point. This, this message isn't necessarily about adoption. What I want it to be is that we are unflinching in the point of testing when God's fatherland is at stake. But I had something I wanted to introduce you guys to, and we should have it via Skype from Haiti. Uh, Annie Weshi is one of our staff members here at Ellerslie. She's currently down in Haiti with four other Ellerslie graduates. And there was sort of a mystery of why she was down there because we weren't free yet to be able to describe what was taking place. But Annie went down to care for two little babies particularly, even though she's caring for a lot more, that were not doing well in their health. And they were both abandoned. And we had received a request from a lady down in Haiti who runs a rescue mission down there if we would consider naming and giving birth dates to these two little uh, abandoned babies, which was a little strange. You know, usually we're not asked to do that. And then she asked us one more thing to consider, and that is if we would consider adopting them. And... Uh, Annie is actually down in Haiti with our two little ones whose names are Lily and Reese Uh, and Annie could you describe first and foremost uh, the process that you have gone through you've been hearing the message so far is that correct yes okay could you could you make a comment and just sort of give your little mini message of what you're doing down there and maybe also give perspective in, in regards to this exact truth
2: sure um, well this this is a passion God has put in my heart is rescuing these little children, and um, he had awakened it a while ago, but for a long season, He asked me to love these kids in a different way i wasn 't actually going out there 's so many ways that you can respond in obedience and uh, I was there with you guys on the home front, and God was showing me how to lay that foundation of prayer and to start right away and love these kids. And so, kind of a fast forwarded version of how I got here and what God has been doing, right before I came out to Haiti was probably one of, um, I would say, a time in my life I would say I was at the weakest. Physically, I was, uh, there was a lot of bait for fear about my physical state. Um, I was weary spiritually, still hungering after the Lord, but just, I would say it was one of my weakest times. And it was, right after God's grace came in and he He pointed those things out to me and he began to strengthen me again and set truth in front of me. Um, and right after that, he opened up this door to come down. And, uh, I knew that God wanted me to be down here, but it was definitely a step of faith to, to leave everything. Suddenly I had about 10 days to, um, prepare not knowing when I would come back. Uh, But even in that stage of saying, yes, Lord, I'm willing, please let me go, um, in thinking about all the unknowns, there was an immediate joy and it was an absolute delight to prepare to go. Yeah, there were logistic things to arrange, there were family members to explain it to, but God's grace entered in with everything that was needed. And since coming, since that stage before and in coming. We, all of us, have faced so many unknowns. There's, there's elements of fear in the natural. There's physical things to contend with. There's children that um, come to you and they're dying. And yet God's provision of his promises is there at every single turn. We have not seen God fail at all. Um, on a personal uh, standpoint, just with physical health sustaining us when we're really tired, um, a short testimony with these these two babies in particular. There were a lot of nights that we didn't get sleep in that first stretch. Um, but in your own whiz- weariness, in the physical weariness, you get up and you make yourself available to these children, and God just gives you sight of His heart and of of where these babies came from, and His life within and His love. Um, and the promises of His Word carry you unlike anything else. This has been an absolute privilege to be here with these kids. And um, it's it's precious to me to look at a situation that is unknown and has a lot of potential challenges or inconveniences that come with it. Um, And yet, God, His promises are before you in Word, And then you step forward in obedience and faith, and those promises are realized at every point that you need them to be true. They are true. Um, So it's, you know, a lot of people have said, wow, you've given up everything and your whole life has changed. Um, But I stop them right away and say, this is actually a dream come true. And though there may be uh, adjustments in my life and it looks entirely different, um, I have never had so much joy and God is just increasingly shown um, in my life and in t- the girls around us and to these kids to be faithful. And it's a tremendous privilege. So,
1: thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Uh, do you have some little munchkins that you can show us?
2: Hey, Lily. Oh, so excited.
1: This is Lily. <laughs> Lily. Lily was 10 pounds when Annie arrived. And how, how long have you been there, Annie? Uh,
2: I guess a little months, two and a half.
1: Two and a half months. And she is one plump character now. Uh, she is so precious. And her little personality, she, is, uh, she fits right into the Lutie home. She's a, she's a little, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, gregarious. Uh, but uh, I want to, let, let's pray for Lily, even as she's up there on the screen. Holy Father, I thank you so much for that precious little girl. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that there would be so, more, so many more of them that would find their ways into arms like Annie's to be sustained and to be fed and to be loved and to be held. Lord Jesus, may they know your Father's heart. And truly, Lord Jesus, may she grow up to fit her name, to be a set-apart girl in this generation, a set-apart rescuer, willing to give up her strength to help those that were like her. Lord Jesus, what a blessing it is to have her! Oh, thanks for sharing, Lily. Do you also have yeah. Reese around?
2: I've got some helpers behind the scenes passing <laughs> off the babies. Oh, here's Reese, boy.
1: Oh, Reese! <laughs> oh, he's so precious. Uh, oh, both. Very
2: my pit. When we, uh, when we were first here, he was in a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain, uh, and just had a very sad little spirit to him. And uh, we were all praying for him, and uh, Eric prayed some fatherly prayers that he would be this uh, joyful little guy. And he is so smiling and so happy.
1: Oh, well, you have to be. To be a looty, you have to smile. That's one of the prerequisites. Oh, he's so precious. Uh, well, let's pray for Reese. Holy Father, we just thank you for little Reese. And we thank you for what he represents. And we thank you for his joy that is beginning to increase within his soul. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to grow that up. And may he be the most joyful young boy in his generation. Lord, I pray that you'd fill him with the spirit of God from a young age to do mighty exploits for you. And Lord Jesus, may you never uh, allow that passion that he will feel for those in his like circumstances. Those little abandoned babies. In Haiti, may He never forget them, and may He be built strong to be able to support them and to give to them. Lord Jesus, thank you for His little life. Amen. Hey Annie, do we-, we happen to have Nessa handy? Is that even? We do. Oh, good. Yeah. If If any of you were at the Set Apart Girls conference, and there was a little baby girl that we prayed for, how many of you were here at that time? There's only a few of you. Uh, there was a little girl. We got a text. Oh. We got a we got a text from uh, Annie that there was a little girl that was dying, that little had uh, burn marks all over her body. I mean it was a it was a, oh. But we in, stopped everything, we began to pray for this girl because she was her eyes were rolling back in her head, she had the smell of death upon her, she was dying. Everyone that's familiar with death there in Haiti knew that she was dying. There was no option for the hospital, it was literally raw prayer that would have to carry her through, and so everyone at the Set Park Girl Conference, this was simulcasted all over the world, so there were thousands of people that stopped everything and began to pray for this little girl, and she made it. She's called Miracle Baby. Uh, Annie uh, calls her Nessa, which means, doesn't that mean miracle of God?
2: Yeah, it means miracle of God, holy
1: and pure. Yeah. And so uh, the, the story with her, I, I can't really go into it yet, uh, but hopefully we have time in the future to do that. But uh, can you believe just how precious these little ones are? I mean, this is a life that literally most likely would not be alive today without the mm-hmm. saints of God, without Annie literally interceding and saying, this child will not die. And the story behind it is so amazing. But this is simply a picture of a patriot rescuing a little vulnerable child. And it's a beautiful picture for all of us just to remember this is real. This is not imaginary. This is real. And these are real lives that live for eternity. And the the eternity hangs in the balance. And the Church of Jesus Christ must care for the Fatherland. Uh, Annie, do you have any last things to say uh, that you'd like to add?
2: No, I just, um, I'll just say thank you for, for speaking this message. And, um, uh, I, I don't, I feel like I don't have the right words, but just to say it is real and, um, you move forward when things are unseen and yet, um, it's real and it's by faith. And even with little Nessa, uh, when she came to us and, and was dying, you see in the natural what scares you and, um there's bait there. There's always bait to doubt. Um, but though we stood for what God's heart was for this little one and for the other two, I would say his grace, uh, enters in every time to enable you to believe, to enable you to stand and not doubt. There was, um, an amazing resolve in my heart and courage that she was to live. And, uh, that's not of me or, um, of my courage or of my, um, strength and might to for it, it completely rested on the power of our god who is for these little ones and when you know his agenda um it's it's so thrilling to go after it and see him prove faithful every time so thanks for letting me share and share the babies with you it's an absolute thrill
1: well annie how many more abandoned babies like nessa are there where you guys are at um
2: well at the the that these children are a part of, there's, I think, about 150 around there. A lot of them have waiting families, but from my experience being down here in the two and a half months, um, every week there's new children that are brought in. Uh, Within the area, there are orphanages that are in horrible conditions and need to probably be shut down. And when they are shut down, those children will be rescued and most likely channeled into, um, uh, the ministry down here. So there's, um, I know even this last week, there were, uh, there was a brand new baby and some older children brought in. So it feels daily. It's a, it's a daily present need to fight for these little ones. And, uh, there's, uh, also a lot of older kids that have been looked over that beyond see God's mighty calling on them And there's a tremendous need to fight for their souls, that they don't um, turn to the patterns of this culture that's in need of Jesus Christ or um, turn to the lifestyle that got them where they are, um, but that they would be turned into mighty men and women to also be rescuers.
1: Well, Annie, I'm going to pray for Nessa and uh, the 150 uh, that you guys have down there, because I just want, as the body of Christ, to stand with you, ladies, because you guys are praying daily. You're standing in the gap for them, and we want to stand in the gap for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we stand for little Nessa and we just ask that you would fully recover her health and make her strong. Lord, I pray that her future would be a bright one and that you would prepare her for the gospel, that you would craft her soul to receive and to understand, to comprehend the depths of your love and your calling upon her. Lord Jesus, I just pray for those 150 that Nessa represents and that Lily and Reese represent, those abandoned ones, those ones that are left without, without advocacy, without any support, without any provision. And Lord Jesus, they're left to nothing but to die. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that in their being left to die, they would find life. That the believers in Jesus Christ in our day and our hour would truly rise up and be patriots. And that we would pour out our life for that which is weak. Lord Jesus, thank you for this precious one. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks, Annie. We'll be Thanks praying so for much.
2: You. God bless. All right. Bye-bye.
1: Goodbye hudson's solution when hudson first heard annie had just come back from a a trip to haiti and was talking about orphans we were talking in the kitchen about orphans and hudson heard about orphans and he wanted us to adopt 20 of them he couldn't believe that there were kids out there that didn't have parents i mean to him that was just shocking what's funny is it's no longer shocking to us we've lost our little kidness we've lost the sense of justice And what is right and what is appropriate. 163 million, and most of us don't feel the weight of the injustice. So Hudson had a solution, and that was to build beds uh, for all these kids. Because Mama had said, well, Hudson, we don't have room in our house for 20. She didn't want to tell him that, you know, it also costs a small fortune uh, to do that. But we don't have room in our house, was one of the things she said. So Hudson literally put orphan beds all over our house. We came up one day and there were little blankets or towels and, you know, little uh, pillows and stuffed animals all over the upstairs. Hudson had literally put most of them in his room. Uh, It was really neat. So this is the very last statement from something I wrote back in 2008. As I tucked him in last night, Hudson said, know what, Daddy? I said, what, Schnuggle Bunny? His left eyebrow raised as if an amazing idea was finding wings within his mind. And he said, if we bring these orphans into our family, then they won't be orphans anymore. You know how profound that statement is? You know how you take care of an orphan? You take care of the fact that they no longer need to be an orphan. We have families. We have homes. We have father hearts and mother hearts to extend. I know not all of us can take care of 163 million. I mean, it's it's overwhelming, but we can take care of one. Or, get this, we can help someone else take care of one. Some of us might not be in a position to adopt, but we can help someone adopt. If we function as the body of Christ, who knows what could happen? The obvious solution is just too obvious. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could adopt, but that's complicated. Are you willing to take on a little inconvenience? And I'm not trying to just sell adoption. I'm a big fan of it, yes. But adoption isn't the only thing. I want us just to be ready to stand up against the big meanie and the big bully at every turn. I don't care what it is, but there's these little ones, these little vulnerable ones that are being preyed upon by the big meanies out there. And I tell you what, there's a need for a patriot to rise up in this generation. The burden of action. Because you could say, you know what, hey, it's not my business for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. We had a statement in, our, in a men's group this morning, and it came out something like this. Uh, research has shown that if you, are in, if you earn 50000 or more, you are literally in the top one percentile up with Bill Gates of the most wealthy people on earth. Very likely that would mean the most wealthy people in all world history. 50,000 or more. If, you're in the 30 per, if you earn 30,000 or more, it was something like you're in the top 10% of those alive today on planet Earth. Okay. To whom much is given, we have resource. We have strength. We also have Jesus. Don't tell me that you haven't been given something. You may not have money, silver and gold, have I none, but such as you do have, give it. You have something, get on your knees and begin to pray. You give that which you have. If God has given you something, don't hoard it. Give it, spend it. Becoming an emergency rescue shelter. Focus on the family. Back in the days of Y2K, they didn't know. This is Colorado in the middle of winter, right? They didn't know what was gonna happen, and so what they did is they had a model that if all the power went out, and all food, you know, was suddenly scarce, Well, they made themselves, their facilities, open as an emergency rescue shelter. I remember thinking, that's Christianity. To take the resources you have, and if someone's going to need it, then you make it available. Isn't that how it works? Where the cold are warmed, the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the weak are made strong. Now, you may not, it's like, well, yeah, I would do that if I had a whole facility. Give me a multi-million dollar facility and I'll open it up. See, that's the way most of us think. And as a result, we don't practice hospitality in the here and now, when all we have is our own, you know, our own body and our clothes on our back. It's like, well, how do you do that? Listen to this. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind. A man? What a strange statement that? A man will be a hiding place in the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. Who is that man? That's Jesus Christ. There was a man that fulfilled that prophecy and a man did become a hiding place from the wind. A man did become a cover from the tempest. A man did become a river, as rivers of waters in a dry place as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. I know that man. Many of you in here do too. And I found shelter in him. I found an emergency rescue shelter in a man. And I have found refuge and strength and life. Why? So that I could hoard it for myself? Why did God open up that shelter for me to come into? Why did He strengthen me? Why did He supply me with all He supplied me with so that I could give that which I've been given? Becoming a hiding place in the wind, doing the work of the man. A man will be as a hiding place in the wind. Are you willing to be a hiding place in the wind in this generation? Where those in this generation can come and they say, you have a strength. You have something I need. Now, when they come to you, are you the true hiding place? No. But you can supply them with it. You are, in essence, the distributor of the hiding place. You are able to help them find refuge. And by the way, if you do have a house, it's a hiding place from the wind. And you can make it available. If you have resources, those are strength points that you can begin to supply to those around you. Can't you just catch the vision of what this would be like? In other words, how can we as the body of Christ support one another in doing the work of the man? Well, it's a vision. And it is cultivating within me more and more. It's deeper and deeper a longing to take this army that we have here at Ellerslie. I mean, we have an army to literally go somehow, some way. Now discipleship, by the way, is what we do here. We train people to go. Some people are ready to go prematurely and when they go, they actually do more harm than good. We have to be made strong to go. If you're still weak and you're limping along, you're going to bleed all over them too. There's a need for discipleship and the foundation to be laid so that when you go, you actually give and you have something to give. And that's what we do here. But we also have to have the going. You cannot trim it short. You must have the work of the patriot that begins to emerge in and through our lives. The appropriate use of strength, ordered to both win the day and protect the weak. You know that every military force has an order to it, there's an advanced or vanguard. That's the front guard. Main or middle guard, that's where most of the troops are. They're in the middle. And then you have the rear guard, which supports the back. There's also something called the lifeguard. This is really amazing. I had a... In... Where was I? Carlsbad. They have all of the, uh, the beaches where there's like a, a spot for the lifeguards to sit. And there was one that said, lifeguard. It was all big. And then it had number 29 on it. Because they're all numbered every... I don't know if it's every quarter mile or mile or whatever... And it was 29. That's like Job 29. It said, lifeguard. Oh, I w- the whole time I was down there, I wanted to take a picture of it, and I never did, because this is the perfect time to stick it up. Lifeguard sounds like someone who twirls their, you know, their whistle. That's not what this is. This is literally someone, a special forces regiment in and amongst the troops, a body of select troops whose duty is to defend the person of a prince or other singularly valuable persons. The royalty were protected with the lifeguard. You know what I want to raise up in this generation, what I want to see built in this church? A lifeguard. Special forces, regiment, that goes in to defend the royalty in this generation. Who are the royalty in this generation? The orphans and the widows. It's the weak. In God's economy, that's the royalty. We serve and lay down everything to protect them, to provide for them, to preserve them. It's the lifeguard. So we need to somehow reinvigorate that term because it sounds weak. sounds like you have a bathing suit on. This is armor, sword. This is the work of the patriots, the lifeguard. Not every single one of us is called to be front lines in Haiti. However, every single one of us is called to be patriots. Not all of us are called to go. Some of us are called to stay. Not all of us are called to adopt, but every single one of us must be engaged in the battle. We cannot just give it to someone else. Make sure your hand is not on the volume knob. Your job is to make sure the volume is completely turned down and that you have an ear for your master. And what he asks of you, your answer is yes. When the request for Lillian Reese came to us, Leslie and I already had said yes. Not to the one asking, but to God. Our statement was, God, when you show us what we should do, these resources belong to you. So, when the request came, I remember when we were being asked, it was like, why can't it be one child? Why does it have to be two babies? I mean, this is, that's the man side of me thinking for a little blip. And then the other side, which was, yes, God, the answer is yes. However, I'm still going to pray about it just in case you want it to be no. But my answer is yes. And what I would just encourage all of you is to have the predecided yes begin to form inside of you. You may not yet know what is going to be required of you for saying yes, but to choose ahead of time, not to filter the circumstances based on how they look or how much it might cost or how much energy it might take or how difficult that might prove in the future. Yes. If God asks you, why would you ever think of saying no? Why would you even spend any time filtering it? It's a God request, and you will begin to recognize God requests. They're sort of obvious. They stare you in the face. The answer is, yes, Lord. And God can say, well, I haven't even asked you yet. My answer is yes when you do. He understands how it works. It's the predecided yes, Lord. And that's how we function as Christians. We make our lives available, and we say, yes, whatever you're going to bring in my future, whatever little one needs to be protected, spend this. Train me for the bully. And that's precisely what the church of Jesus Christ needs. Open your mouth for the speechless and the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. This is Job chapter 29. I love this. I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Christianity. Well, one definition of Christianity could be embracing the inconvenient. I have another one for you, too. Standing up for what is right even when everyone else remains seated. I have a third one for you, too. Being made strong to be poured out. And one more to throw on top. Doing that which the Father is doing. We're patriots. you always wanted to be a patriot. The type of patriot that you're going to be and be called to this world may not appreciate they may, may, may not make a movie about it. However, this is the kind that a movie is made about it in heaven. This is the kind that God esteems. You give up your life for that which matters to the Father. When he says this matters to me, when you enter into the Fatherland, you'll begin to have that instinct cultivated within you, and you'll know when your father has a tear streaming down his cheek. You'll know when his heart is aching, because your heart will ache too, and a, and a tear will begin to stream down your face. Sort of hard to explain, but for those of you that are on the cusp of it or have actually begun to sense this, you know what I mean. It's an amazing thing when your heart is beginning to be warmed by the Holy Spirit and that patriot is beginning to awaken in you. Remember, this message isn't a violent message. This isn't a message about going out there and showing aggression against those who are harming the little ones. It's about standing up and protecting the little ones. It's about giving what we have to love and to serve and to bless.
0: Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.